Alright you guys, welcome back to Little Man Big Conversations. Man, I have had a cavalcade of guests on this podcast thus far. Some that I met during my time, some that I've met in my later years of wrestling. But hey, this guy was there from day one. He was the first person to acknowledge me for what I did in that ring using the phrase, that is the greatest thing I've ever witnessed. Now, I've gone on since then, and maybe I've achieved such greatness since then, but maybe that was the peak of my career. Who knows? Only one man knows, and he's here today. He's my friend. He's my brother. I'm close to almost knowing this guy for pretty much close to 12 years. We did work in the ring. We did work outside the ring with the late night show with my guest today, Scott Black. Scott, how are you, man? I'm just staggering from your use of the word cavalcade. So uh, <laughs> very impressed with your vocabulary. I'm good, man. How are you? It was my word of the day. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm looking at the calendar right now. Tomorrow's <laughs> is disingenuous. <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards, snake. Um, yeah, I'm I'm doing great, man. All things considered, it's a crazy, crazy time on here. But I know you're a busy, busy man these days. So I really appreciate you coming on here and sparing some time. So take a trip down memory lane. Hey, anything, you know, everything outside of a kidney. I mean, I can give you a kidney, but just don't ask me where I get it. <laughs> hey, man, I'm one short. Two yes. would be, not be so bad. <laughs> man, as I reference on top of this episode, you were there at day one. Uh, I I wore that gigantic red jumper. I did mm. that comedy dance-off segment. And that's a shoot. That's a quote. You got up from the desk and you said, man, that is the greatest thing I've ever witnessed. And you gave me a standing ovation. Mm. Man. Yeah, well, it, as, as it was back in the day uh, at, at uh, Impact, um, there wasn't a lot of notes <laughs> as yeah. a commentator. So I was doing commentary at the time because I had um, hurt myself. I had broken my back and needed to take a long time off. Um, and then when I did kind of come back into the world of wrestling, I came back into the, the announcing side because Pete yeah. always liked me on the mic. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, I didn't know if I could still go anyway. So I was like, yeah, I'll do this commentator thing. So, yeah, when that I, when you showed up as a commentator, you were given a sheet of paper that said the sponsors and then list the matches. And that was it. And I remember they're saying a section. It was like dance off. And I went, oh, this is interesting. I've never commentated a dance off before, but let's see how this goes. Um, and then, yeah, I just see this at what I thought was a kid <laughs> yeah. at the time. And yeah, who yeah. was introduced as a kid? Yeah, um, yeah, and get in there and do this freaking Michael Jackson dance. <laughs> yeah. And I was expecting, you know, I don't, yeah, you know, the time periods are a bit off. I was expecting essentially the time of like the freaking floss and you know, a couple of little you know Fortnite like dances. You know, nothing in particular. So when you actually knocked off this dance, I was like. <laughs> Holy shit. Like, <laughs> like, and, I, and it was it was great. And I guess, you know, the, it, it, yeah, I'm thinking it, you were a kid. Obviously, uh, when I found your story afterwards, I was even more impressed. Um, but thinking at the time, you know, the, I think the way they said it to me was like it was a 10-year-old kid that was coming in to do this thing. <laughs> and my eyesight's not great anyway, so I couldn't see your face yeah. where I was. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay. And then to see this, I was like, Jesus Christ. Christ, all right, that's pretty good. So, yeah, getting up and giving you the standing ovation because, yeah, it was pretty great. <laughs> Man, it was, uh, it was a weird sensation. I didn't think uh, that turn of events would lead to me being in wrestling. I, uh, I, I joined up, I think, the next week. I joined up with Blaze, and uh, I always envisioned myself as doing the managerial side of things. Uh, it was, wasn't until two months later 
where I actually had my in-ring debut. Blazer got injured. I, I decided to jump in there and fill in the void. He was at ringside. But yeah, you were always at that commentary desk up until about, I think, uh, pretty much, I want to say mid-2009. Uh, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, and I, yeah, you were there. Uh, during the times when uh, I started doing all those impressions. I remember, I think I still have footage of, I, I came out and impersonated The Rock one show. I did Undertaker. Uh, Austin. And, yeah, <laughs> yes, did Austin. And hell, even at one time, you and I sort of paid tribute to D-Generation X at a couple of shows. But mm-hmm. yeah, so to that. I remember, I got- I remember seeing you do them and I, and I kind of went, all right, this is cute, but I knew... And at that stage, you and I had started to get to know, know each other personally anyway. Right, yeah. And, um, and I kind of kept going, like Pete kept going, oh, yeah, he's going to come out, he's going to do Undertaker this show. And I kind of went, I, I've, I've never been a huge fan of, like, tribute acts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I was, I was like, oh, I, I just knew you had, you had a much better personality. And again, wrestling is, in a classic world, wrestling is best gimmicks are your personality turned up to 11 yeah and and so seeing you come out and doing austin and doing taker it's like it was great for a cheap pulp it was great Mm. for the 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 kids in the audience and stuff like that well some of the kids who actually knew who the characters were because at that time even then austin hadn't been wrestling for like what 10 years or something (laughs) yeah yeah and so so to come out and do austin in front of nine-year-olds they're like why is this guy drinking quote-unquote beer and giving everyone the (laughs) finger um the Undertaker one, I, st- I stood out because obviously uh, you couldn't be more of a polar opposite <laughs> of, <laughs> of the Undertaker. Yeah, um, the hair color. Yeah, hair is all you, you. Well, you both dyed your hair a lot too, so <laughs> that's probably the only similarities. But um, it, it was cool. Um, but it, I kind of like I knew there was more to you. I knew there was more that you could bring by being yourself. So I kept pushing Pete. In the back, like he's like, oh, next week I might get him to do one of the old. I'm like, just let him be him, man. And eventually, when you started coming out as Flashman, I, I that was when that that I thought that's when you hit your stride because yeah, it was so much better than just stealing someone. It's easy to steal someone else's gimmick. It's hard. Yeah. To do your own thing. Yeah, because uh, I mean, I completely agree. Um, looking back on it now, the only reason I was doing those impressions back then was because uh, I didn't really feel. And some people may argue this today, and to them I say thanks very much. But um, I didn't really feel back then that I had a place in that ring. I never envisioned myself wrestling. I knew that I wanted to manage my friend because that is what we'd always spoke about during high school. And then when the impressions caught on and the crowd sort of was into it, uh, the the idea came about at training where it was like, can you do any more of them? And I thought, well, yeah, I've got like a count of one hand list, the ones that I sort of feel confident with. And I remember the guys of like Ash and Sweet Assassin and obviously Hawk as well were very much into the concept because, hey, it's like this guy that's pretty much a quarter or half the size of these guys going out there and really carrying on the impressions and the personas of those characters. But yeah, it wasn't until I think a couple months in, maybe even early 2009, where the idea came about of, I think it was after the one I, uh, where I impersonated The Rock, and I think that was January 2009, where I sort of went, okay, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel bored of this. But the crowd's into it, and the and the and the the fun was there, 
but I think it was uh, just a case of like, yeah, this is number one. I'm kind of running out of impressions here, and number two, uh, I'm starting to gain my confidence, and I'm still trying to work out what this Flashman character would turn into. So it was a weird series of events that sort of led to a sink or swim moment where I think maybe even a month or two after that, like we're maybe talking about April, May now, where Blaze and Fury just upped and left. And now the idea was that, okay, you've been managing these guys for close to going on a year now. You've been doing these impressions, but then they're coming out and managing these guys. They're not there anymore. So what do you want to do? Do you want to leave or do you want to stay? And I chose to stay. And I think that's where the whole idea of the biggest little man, the little engine that could, the size of the heart or the size of the fight and the dog kind of mentality, that underdog persona started to resonate with people because I think it was not to pigeonhole myself, but it was something different because one, I was the only guy of my size in that roster at that time. And two, uh, like you touched on, there was kids there that because of my size didn't think anything more other than, oh, he's like me mm. because of my size. So there was a sort of pigeonhole effect of, well, I've got a connection with these younger audiences because, hey, they think I am the younger audience. So it was this weird sort of dynamic for a while there. But, yeah, you were there day one. Um, but I never I, – I assumed it was – business because outside of this realm you were working uh at that time at what was known as bruce 31 because you had just done two seasons at that time uh maybe maybe the third was filmed no the third was being filmed when i signed up but there was oh. definitely two that were done of uh ipw's television sh series called slam nation uh but in 2009 you walked away from the commentary desk. So what happened there for you? Was it just a case of, hey, work's picking up, I got to go, or? No, I got back in the ring. That was what happened. Right. And so I I got the, like, and this is the issue, and this is why I've kind of stayed retired uh, ever since I finally did officially hang it up, um, is that when you get close to wrestling, and wrestling has been in my blood since I was a little kid. I was watching it since I was little, saw WrestleMania one on closed circuit TV, never missed a pay-per-view after that. And, um, I, yeah, it was in the, and every once in a while, like when Jethro would come up, you know, him and I have such history and I know he's a safe worker and always enjoyed working with him. We'd always do a little something because he was there and it had to be special. So, you know, him and I would beat each other up for a second and it yeah. just slowly, surely, um, I started feeling more confident and I started doing some trainings and then, um, and then I had a, a an examination on my back cause I had broken it. Um, and they were like, yeah, no, your broken vertebrae is as good is better than your other one. So yeah, if oh, wow. you want to go back into sports, go for it. And I was like, yeah, all right. Um, so took that as opportunity and, and, and Pete was, uh, Hawk at the time was, is, was missing a few main event people down with injuries and things like that. And he wanted to do this big six man tag thing. So I kind of, we did a storyline where I got involved and then we did a big six man tag. Um, and yeah, that I came out of retirement for that and it was only going to be a short term thing, but then it felt so good. Um, that we kept doing it. Um, yeah, yeah that's right. Cause 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's all starting to click back for me because I thought at that point something had happened. You're like, man, I don't want to talk anymore. But something did happen, but it was in a positive way, which is, yeah, I don't want to talk anymore because I'm good to go. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't and, get this. I didn't get to go out on my terms, and okay. and and that uh, that bothered me. And and I see that a lot in uh, if, if any wrestling fans out there watch the latest uh, WWE 24 with Edge. Um, you know, you get told. Like when I hurt myself, I, when I broke my back, I wrestled for a year with a, a cracked vertebrae in my back thinking I had pulled a muscle until I started losing finger, feeling in my hands. Right. And then went, went and got an x-ray and they were like, yeah, you got to stop everything immediately. Couldn't go to the gym, couldn't do nothing, couldn't mm-hmm. even run, had to sit down all the time, lay down at most. And so that was it. There was no goodbye, no last match, no, you know, here we go. Um and so when I got the all clear to kind of, yeah, you can have another go. It's like, shit, all right, well, I can do this again. And it might be different. I knew it was not going to be the devil may care, use my body as an implement of destruction um, that I used to be. Mm. Um, and that was going to be a lot more ground and pound stuff. But I, uh, at least I could come back and do something and go out on my turns. And, and that was weird because we used to get paid to do commentary and the music. But you didn't get paid to wrestle. Right. And so I was actually losing money and upping the risk, which right. is not the smartest thing in the world to do. But, um, yeah, no, it was what I wanted to do. And, you know, you only have a finite time as a performer. Um, and some guys uh, fail to realize that and continue to do it well way past they should. Um, but you know, you kind of, I knew I only had a short time. I'm not athletically gifted. Everything I had in wrestling, I worked my ass for all for. So yeah, I knew I, if I was going to have one more go, and I think my son had just been born at that stage and I was just like, no, nah, I gotta, I gotta do this one last thing and then I'll be done with it. And that's what I did. Yeah. Cause we, we managed to get, uh, I, I want to say you did about a, if you're, off the desk in 2009 you were there you had about a year year and a half run where it, uh when we changed venues from where we were at the bicentennial center back down to ashmore you were even had a run there as the uh as, as the ipw champion i did um and that was interesting because when i first started with pete when it was still wcw australia um i was the first second international person he had working for him there was a guy named canadian wolf uh yeah. that we just missed each other. He left and went back to Canada just as I'd come in. And I said, oh, did you ever make him champion? And he went, nah, nah, I thought about it, but we didn't. I said, well, you should put the belt on me, not because I want it, because it, because they were calling it the world title. Yeah. And nobody outside of Australia had held it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, put it on me, get some heat, we can build somebody, and then I'll drop it to him. And immediately, love Pete to death, may he rest in peace. Um, but he was just like, ah, oh, you've got an ego on you, and you know, you just want to be champion. I'm like, no, oh, man, I'm from the school of I don't care about wins and losses. I care about telling good stories and making making stars where we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I, instead of putting the belt on me, he just had the champion beat my ass for uh, a good <laughs> year and a half. Yeah. Um, and make me job out to his uh, puppet claw thing that he had. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's, yeah, it, I did that. I did that run as champion, but it was 
because I said, I want to make a, your next guy. Who's your next guy? And he said, oh, he's poison. I want him to be champion. I said, great. Give me the belt. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll make, I'll make him a star. Yeah. Uh, well, quote unquote, as moved as you can in Australian independent wrestling at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we, that's the business that we did and that was the angle that we went and yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't, it was cool to have. I like the image of me with the belt. I think I put it on my son who was a premature child anyway. So he was a really, really tiny baby. So I put the belt on him and the picture is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but it was good. It was good to have for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. I remember those times, man, because, uh, not only were, we share in the locker room, uh, and we, like you said, we we get to know each other at this point. This was close to, yeah, a year, year and a half of uh, me being down there, and now you coming back in the locker room. But uh, this was also the time where we changed venues. I was out there two times. I had the second character coming up, so I think I shared the ring with you uh, as the second character as as Muse. But not only in the room were we starting to work together. This was also around the time where the idea came about where. Hey, do you want to join up with you on your television show, the late night show? Mm. And yeah, that was that was a. I'm gonna tell you, man, this is a shoot because I haven't told you this. That was a really nerve-wracking message to receive because I knew that it was television. I knew that it was you, and I knew that hey, I can't muck this up. But it was one of those sink or swim moments, like just like when I started wrestling, where it was a case of hey, you guys injured, do you want to wrestle? This was now a very similar. Uh, opportunity where it was like, hey man, do you want to come on board and pretty much do this weekly show here? Uh, I'll need to know pretty soon because we're going to start filming in like the next couple of days. Take me back to that moment for you because we'd always gotten along. Was it a case of you being like, man, I get along with this dude and like you said earlier, he's got a good personality when it shines through when he's not impersonating others. Was was that all it drove for you to do it or was it a case of I want to just you know reach out and see what happens? Um trying to go back i've been hitting the head a lot so trying to go back <laughs> remember these things um yeah, yeah. yeah I, was so, a guest, I, mean, I was a guest for a couple yeah, of episodes you were, you you were a guest yeah and and i i've always liked uh to give opportunities to people and and when um because i've always done different things at the same time so like comedy was always there with the wrestling and acting and all that kind of stuff so i started doing a late night show Mostly because the guy I was producing a late night show wasn't called the late night show, but it was called was it last week tonight? No, that's John Oliver's last night tonight or some some bullshit. Anyway, um, and the host was just a giant douchebag and really hard to work with. And so eventually we ended up giving him the ass. And um, I had guest hosts and I guest hosted a couple. And somebody just went, why don't you just do it if you like it so much? And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, okay. So I started doing the show. Originally we had no guest, no no sidekick. It was just me and my friend Claude being mm-hmm. – and then Whitey would come in. And then the second season I'm like, no, let's start bringing people in. Let's start having guests. And, and, we, and the first sidekick officially was uh, a girl named Max. Yeah. And what and Whitey would come in occasionally because Whitey could never commit to anything, <laughs> so um, he he would uh, he would come and go. So I had Max, and then she left, and then Ann Ferguson Howe came in, who was a comedian, quote yeah. unquote, um, and she was a giant pain in my ass. And and I think you were a guest when she was on, and then when she moved on, well, I moved on. She had 
she had gotten her own show. Um, yeah. That's when I had an opportunity to go, let's reinvent this and, and redo this a bit differently. And that was when Alana, shooting star, came on as mm-hmm. female guest host. And I thought, why don't we, why do we have two? That's, that would be fun. And you and I had always gotten along really well and joked and always had a good time. You know, you, Ash, Scorn, myself, Maddie, were always cracking jokes and being funny in the back of the locker room. And I thought, oh, that's really good. So I thought, I, I like you. You you have fun. So let's see if you're interested. And you, yeah, you were interested. And then, yeah, we just started filming sketches and jokes and being a part of it. And it was cool. And it was such a... Uh, it's a, it was such a whirlwind time. We were doing that for many years together. I think uh, I think I was there. What close you to two, in, two or three? You, yeah, you came in season three, so we did five five years of the show total. Mm. It was two hundred and something episodes. Um, yeah. yeah. So you came in about yeah just at the beginning of season three. I think you were guest season two, and then probably came in season three. Yeah, because I remember I think coming up once or twice as a guest uh and yeah there was this yeah there was this guy i I can't remember the guest's name but he was doing some sort of like height related thing and i was like man you're not gonna call me out on (laughs) oh that was yeah what was his name uh yeah jimmy something uh and 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 rob uh brown i want to say two douche canoe comedians um which there are of many yeah who yeah, I think I was at the time as well, like because you, you were a guest host. I think at that time you were sitting in a corner where we usually had the musicians, and mm. um, yeah, they started making jokes, and I didn't really think too much of it because we used to do the same thing to you. Yeah, and then it wasn't until after that episode where you were like, "Man, that really fucking pissed me off." And I was just like, "Ah, oh, yeah, probably different when you're taking it from your friends <laughs> as opposed to random strangers who think they're being funny." Because I think that was the bigger crime was that they weren't even being funny they were just being dicks yeah yeah because there was one time i was a guest i was sitting in the couch with those chairs next to you and there was like a harry potter dobby comment and i was like oh cool original and then i just i shut that guy down pretty quick and then he went back to being interviewed and i was like random but sure okay and i think that was when we had like a a, a studio audience it might have been like uh uh, either workplace or some sort of school came in and sat down and watched that one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the second one where, yeah, those two comedians were in and I was sitting on, yeah, a stool in like just off to the side there. And yeah, he just started by going, what is that? Who is that? What is that thing? And I was like, dude, just because you're bombing doesn't mean you have to try and rectify it by like calling me out. And yeah, yeah. It was just like this weird thing where I was like, Ugh, I don't, Ugh, it was just like, Oh, so strange. But I think the way that it all went down, it kind of worked for the better because I, I, judging from what I can understand is that I think a lot of people in hindsight were like, no, that guy's pretty cool on the show. It, it wasn't a case of like them agreeing with that guy. It was a case of them being like, no, that dude's funny and gets along with Scott and gets along with the co-hosts and stuff. And it kind of oddly worked in our favor where this guy tried to make an example of me and I ended up being made a permanent resident on the show. Um, so yeah, I was, it was such a, it was, it was honestly such a, uh, a humbling and, and learning experience because not only were we doing that show, we were learning, I was learning about, the film and television industry to a certain extent because that's what I was doing at the time. So to actually be a part of a television station and see the cameras and 
see how everything was run and go up and have meetings with you and see the run sheets and the teleprompter and everything like that. It was, it was thrilling and exciting, but I think it was close to about a year in we swapped guests to Amanda. Um, absolutely amazing, uh, talented lady. Um, but the decision also came down the pipeline of, Hey, Oh, by the way, we're now, uh, we're now going to be doing this live. Yeah. Um, so Take me back to that moment because I, I remember sitting there with you and being like, okay, you got to come up this day. And I went, okay, cool. Why? What's happening? Oh, we're doing it live. Was there anything behind the scenes for you at that point that made that decision to go live? Or was that just a case of, hey, I want to try doing this live? Well, at the, at the time we were recording during the day and yeah. then airing it that night. And it was it was mostly selfish reasons because there had been a number of times – well, there were a few things going on. One, when I when I first started doing the show, I wasn't the boss at Bridge Thirty One. I was I was an underling to a, an egomaniacal douche pickle uh, who just kept trying to censor us and censor us and censor us and push us down, push us down. Um, and so he, and, and to his defense, I kind of see why because I was a bit more rebellious at that stage. And, you know, I've always had that DX, damn the man, save the empire, like you know. I'm going to break it down, rage against the machine cut attitude. Yeah, um, yeah. And so we kept pushing the boundaries, pushing the boundaries, and that would upset him. And then he'd get a complaint, and I'd rail against the complaint. And that, anyway, so uh, eventually he got the ass because he was useless. And um, I ended up taking over as, as the boss. And so then I kind of had the freedom to kind of do what the audience wanted, what I wanted to do, and what was best for the show and the station. And I knew that we needed a live program so that people could get experience doing live TV because that's the best kind of TV and kind of the only kind of TV that Australia is really good at producing. So I knew I needed a live show. Nobody wanted to do it. Um, so I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll do it because at least if it happens on a comedy show, we can cover it. If something breaks, if something falls over, we can cover it. No problem. You know, we, we can make fun of it. Um, and the other side of it, which was the more selfish side, is that writing the monologue, doing the monologue, and then some politician or somebody would, or celebrity or whatever would do something in between recording and airing that would completely fuck the monologue. Right. Um, that, you know, like I would do something about, I think Julia Gillard was the prime minister at the time. I'd do something about a policy um, that she had enacted and we would, we would you know, good three or four minutes on this policy. And then between recording and airing, she'd backflip or her party would backflip and that policy wouldn't go in. So when it went to air, I kind of looked like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So it was like, all right, fuck it. You know, let's do it live. We can train people on how to do live program. It'll make mm. the show exciting because then anything can happen. And I always love that about wrestling as well yeah. and doing stand up. So anything can happen. It's live. People get exposure. And if something changes between when I finish writing the monologue and us airing, I could change it so that we were as current as possible. And and I mean, there were times I was rewording. There, I remember a couple of times giving hand signals to Reese, who was the, the teleprompter guy, to tell him to skip a joke because that had been removed because of something in the news. And, and you know, and I attack something onto the bottom or I would go off the top of my head or something like that. So, yeah, it just it made it a bit more exciting. And it was very challenging and, and it gave that kind of 
buzz is I find recording, um, even even doing with this podcast when you were before we started recording and you started going through the list of how you do it and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, just go for it, man. Just I I <laughs> yeah. I much prefer going live and not knowing what's going right. to happen. Yeah, and and kind of going with it as opposed to you know uh, planning everything out. And I that was in wrestling as in life. I I just prefer to go out there. I mean, there's a story that uh, a friend of mine, a comedian, loves to tell about. You know, we're going in front of this crowd of a couple hundred people to do a stand-up show. Mm. And I said, man, I'm bored. And he goes, I got an idea. He goes, challenge. And I said, all right, what's your challenge? He goes, I don't want to hear anything you've ever written before. So he's, I'm like, I'm like two minutes about going on stage. And he's just like, he's do a whole new show. Do a whole new act. And I'm like, yeah, all right. So I went up there and just made it up. Was it great? It had moments, uh, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah. I didn't bite it in the ass, and I, I I fulfilled the bet, and people were entertained. So, you know, I I like that kind of that challenge. So, yeah, I do Please. it all the time. I still do it to this day. I go on the ABC radio regularly, and they always send me run sheets and stuff. I don't think I've ever opened one. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for the ABC listeners out there. Uh, there you go. Scott's yeah. never opened uh, any of those run sheets. Well, they keep um, asking me back, so it can't be too bad. <laughs> <laughs> You'll open it this time. Mm. Um, speaking of a challenge, man, you bring up you bring up stand up comedy. It just triggered uh, triggered a memory in my brain. It was you on live on air when we started doing this live. Um, I think it was 2012 at this point, where live on air you issued me a challenge where you said uh, we had a comedian on. And he was doing an open mic night, and he said he said a sort of like a passive a comment like, "Oh, Flash would be good at that." And then you sort of saw that oh, red, you know, the red, the red, uh, the red sheet of the raging charging bull, and went, "Oh, I'm going to play with this," and went, oh. "Yeah, it would be." And it was this moment where, yeah, we're live on air. We've got you as the host. We've got the guest, and I think it was Amanda. Could have been Alana, but I'm pretty sure it was Amanda. All three of you just looking at me, and it was this moment of like, do the line, Bart, where everyone was just staring at me with the red light, the camera's there. Mm. You can hear a pin drop in that studio, and I'm going, oh, okay, well, this is for TV. And I went, okay, I'll do it. And everyone was like, yay. And then the camera stopped. We finished the episode. And I think I came up to you afterwards, and I was like, i got to really do that now. And you're like, yep. It's live in Brisbane. There's a lot of people that saw that. And I'm like, damn it. But hey, it was a challenge. I have never written anything before. I think I went up there and I don't even know how long it was. Might have been like five, five minutes or something like that. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I think I just sort of self-deprecated myself. Not defecate, deprecated myself. He, and... he did that before he got on stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's wearing a dress now. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, it was... Uh, it was awesome, man. Like I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think the host had dropped a line earlier of like either some height related or medical thing. And I, I remember hearing that and going, Oh, I'm going to grab that and run with it. And yeah, it was such a whirlwind experience, but yeah, we managed to, I managed to do a couple of comedy shows there for a while. I mean, the whole concept of the late night show was comedy, but I'm talking about like outside the studio, we managed to do some, do some runs there, um, as a live event. Um, which sort of took me back to like our wrestling days. And yeah, those were some crazy times, man. And hell, depending on where I am, uh, I'll still to this day 
be recognized and either via my voice or probably nine times out of ten via my frame saying, hey, you know, I remember seeing you on TV. Did you do that comedy show with that American guy? And I was like, yeah, Scott Black. Yeah, that's it. I used to watch it all the time. I was a big fan. I'm thinking, big fan, can't remember the, <laughs> can't remember the host's name. It's, it's in the name of the show. But, hey, I appreciate all the comments and, and any sort of passing strangers that stop and want to have a, like a little bit of a handshake or a thank you. Uh, not so much these days. Can't, can't do the whole handshake thing, social distancing. But, yeah, and I've got to say, man. That's all high five. Yeah, yeah, elbow. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's all thanks to you, buddy. So I really appreciate uh, having that opportunity with you uh, all those many moons ago to do that show. But – it wasn't. Well, I, never, uh, well, I never tried to, and and I remember, I remember the look of panic on your face, like you, <laughs> you had eaten some blowfish, and you were like, "Is this going to kill me?" Um, but the the secret, like, I started doing comedy stand up when I was just starting out in wrestling, and it was actually my my trainer who told me to do it because he said it's essentially all you're doing is cutting a promo, and you, and instead of cutting a promo on somebody you're cutting a promo on the difference between men and women or airplane food or some shit you know so you're kind of just cutting promos and, and learning how to speak in front of an audience which if you've ever cut a promo in wrestling that's exactly what it's like so i i when when they said it and i think you're you're also one of those people um who i, who I love but i also like to push because you know we'd be talking we would have a comedian on the show and him and i would be talking shop about yep comedy and you'd be there and you'd be like oh yeah yeah you know i really i really like oh, i keep thinking i think one day i, I wouldn't mind that i was just like oh well here you go here's your parachute <laughs> yeah you know? so yeah. I, I i'm always a fan of people who who are like i want an opportunity here's an opportunity oh i'll take that opportunity and yep. and there's so many people who don't and mm. i i still talk to some people you know that i knew back in uni days who will right. go? Oh, you know, one day I'm gonna I'm gonna get in the ring. And it's like, dude, we're in our 40s now. That you missed it. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, so they kept saying the whole time I was training. Oh, I'm just gonna get in shape and I'll do it. Oh, I'm just gonna do this and I said, it's like, just fucking do it. Like, life's too short to wonder what if to do. It. So yeah, when the opportunity that I can help uh, give someone a push um, is always uh, always rewarding for me, and it's also hilarious as hell to watch people go oh fuck what huh i don't what <laughs> so it's a double-edged sword i like doing it because i know you uh, i wouldn't do it if i didn't think you could do it if like if i thought it was going to be an absolute train wreck and that you were going to die in the ass on stage uh, i wouldn't do that to you because that's not a great feeling but i had seen you do promos i had seen you be funny on the show and stand-up isn't that hard and funny is something you are it's not something you can learn so yeah, yeah. give someone the opportunity and they'll knock it out of the park yeah i appreciate it, man and uh yeah i i don't know if i completely knocked it out of the park but i i would have at least got to third base and looking at hitting a home run but i i totally had fun um i don't think i wrote anything down. like i didn't take a book with me on stage or anything like that but i i, I think i wrote it down on my phone and yeah i was uh sweating and for some reason i had an obsession with big jackets and i wore a gigantic jumper to this bar and oh it's just i don't know why i was obsessed with huge large jackets it was i don't know i think it was probably a small but it was, it was baggy a, baggy it as was hell. a trend it was a trend it was it was <laughs> your, your version of the, uh, the zubers or whatever the hell those pants were people were in the 90s no, but you, you you do have you do have a bit of selective memory on this one because you uh, 
You, I, I always equivalent at that time to that was your your moment where you were like the little dog in the old Looney Tunes cartoon, just walking around the the, the the bigger dog, going, "What about this? What are we doing today?" What are, because yeah. for the yeah, weeks yeah. leading up to that show where you did your first stand up show, you're like, "I'm thinking about this joke. What about this joke? I'm thinking about this joke. I'm thinking about this joke." And then I would be like, "Yeah, all right. Well, I would do this, this, this. Put it around that way, and there you go." And you go, "Oh, that's perfect, perfect, perfect." And then the next week you come back, and it would be completely different. You had yeah. binned everything that you you had talked about me previously. Like, what about this one? And it's like, "What happened to this one? I didn't like them anymore." It's like, "Oh man, you're overthinking." <laughs> but you, but yeah. it was it was great to see because the one then I found that entertaining. Uh, that tickled my funny bone so i i was happy with that um but yeah i mean yeah it, then that's what you do you i could see the nerves come out of the service and i hadn't probably seen you nervous like that before like you would usually when you get nervous you get quiet and and you're kind of like self-reflecting and kind of internally but this was different this was like an excited nervous which it, it i don't know it tickled me <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I do remember. I, yeah, now you've triggered my memory. I do remember coming to you pretty much weekly when we're doing those shows, and I was like, "Hey, so th this thing's in like two weeks." And you're like, "Yeah." Mm -hmm. I'm like, "Oh, so I've written that." And I remember calling you up and messaging you pretty much all the time, and I was like, "Hey, what about this?" And you're like, "Yeah, I mean, yeah, I get it." And I'm like, "But do you think it's funny?" "Oh, well, I mean, you've told me it before, so." And I'm like, "Ah!" ah! Yeah. <laughs> I was sort of like, "Ah!" on edge about it. But hey, you brought up before about um, you. you Touch briefly then on the double-edged sword. Um, you were running the station at this point, um, yeah. and you're also doing the show, so you're sort of hitting it from both ends, both behind the scenes and in front of the camera. Um, now, I, I know we talked about it in the, years, in the years gone by, but at that time, man, uh, I was only made aware because of a banner that you'd made, and I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, mm. but for those listening, uh, the show to all the people – uh, either working on it, excluding yourself, it kind of came as a big sort of wrenching of the brakes. Oh, last call, guys. You know, and it was a very abrupt moment when all of us collectively found out on social media that the late night show, it, it was, yeah, you were, you were wrapping it up. You're going to, yep, this is the last air date. This is the last episode. We'll try and get everyone back that we can. But hey, this is the final call. I never don't think I ever really quizzed you on it. And I think, you know, with this concept of this podcast, having a big conversation about it f for you, because I know at that time you, you were feeling a bit burnt out, both professionally and performance wise. But in your mind, why, why, why then? Why did it sort of have to say, hey, OK, I'm, I'm tapping out. Did you feel like the show had run its course or were you just feeling so creatively burnt out that you went, hey, if I if I push this I'm, I'm going to ruin something here and it's going to not be what I want to do. There were, I mean, there were a few things. I mean, one, it wasn't like, you know, we had two shows left and we were done. I think I had given it like 15 weeks of, right. of yeah. shows before the final one. Um, 13, 13, 15, I can't remember. Um, yeah. Because I made it, I think it was serendipitous. I, 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 there were a few things going on. One, uh, Turnbull had announced that, uh, who was the prime minister, no, the communications minister at the time, um, that community television was going the way of the dodo and that he was going to pull pull it for reasons no one still to this day understands. Um, professionally, I was dealing with a board um, at, that, at the station um, who couldn't manage their way out of a paper bag. Um, and it, it, was, it was a stressful situation. And then 
the show, which was my creative outlet. I mean, you got to remember, I was at the station running it for nine hours a day. And on the yeah. days of filming, I would and everything we did for Late Night Show was in my own time. So I would be writing at night and then I had a new baby um, at, at that time. Xander had just been born and then um, we would go and do the show. So I would be at the station all day go home, see my wife and kids for a while, go back to the station and do the show. Mm-hmm. So there was that. Then there was things like I would get these associate producers because I kept putting my hand up for help. Like I yeah. need help doing this. I need help getting guests. I need help with writing, you know, and all this stuff. And people would come in for a cup of coffee and fuck off. And right. that was starting to wear on me. And then I've, I, there was a lot of people on the show um, who would come in and just kind of go and look to me to be like the the leader and tell them what to do all the time. And it got to the point where we, we were doing, you know, when you're after 150 something episodes, you should, you should be able to be calm to know that everyone knows their role, but we were having issues week, you know, 190 that we were having week 110. And that's just the nature of community broadcasting. as it is. So those kind of things were in, in my mind. And then I think I, I was sitting down and I was looking at the calendar and I had my, cause I was, a, I'm, a, I'm meticulous when it comes to organizing. And so I had my calendar up for the, the year and I saw the episode 200 was literally a couple of days after my, uh, my birthday. Right. And, and I was just like, shit, if that's not serendipitous, for me to go, all right, that's the, that's the exit day. And again, yeah, and maybe, maybe there was a part of me that was like, I think we've run our course. Um, but I, I definitely wasn't sick of doing it. I, I, I think I was sick of, uh, of a lot of the stuff that went into it. And it was the, you know, the dealing with the, the volunteer crew, it was dealing with the board. It was dealing with any complaints, which we got on the regular, um, it was, it yeah. was also feeling like I have an hour of content every week. I've got to fill, um, and was getting not a lot of help with it and mm. having to fill it all myself. Mm. And, and I think it was just like, well, it, if it's, if everyone's looking to me, like it's your thing, it's your 100% your thing. Then all of a sudden it's like, well, all right, well, I feel like I'm, I'm I've had enough. And it's like, well, why weren't we consulted? It's like, well, I'm sorry. If you if you're not gonna help make dinner, you can't bitch when you don't like the taste, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and and it was. I, I think I, I want to. Uh, yeah, I think I had I put the the banner up, and then I had messaged you and messaged um, uh, Backy, um, and then then started answering all the other ones. I mean. I think Chris as well, the floor producer, world's most useless floor producer, uh, <laughs> who I'm still friends with, still love dearly, but yeah, he was useless. Um, but that was his chick. That was that was the reason why I had him there is because he yeah. was useless and it cracked me up. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was just one of those things where it was like the perfect time to just walk away. And I've always been a big fan of of uh, leaving before you wear it, you're welcome. And mm. I think we had gotten as big as we could get. Um, we had done some awesome TV. We had done some pretty amazing things, but I could see the writing on the wall 
that the station didn't have long, and I was right. Um, and it, I mean, my time at the station as well was coming to an end because I was having constant wars with the board about the direction of the station. Um, right. You know, a lot of people love to say that I, I killed Bruce 31, and I wish I could have that that uh, accoutrement, that title to my resume. But the fact is, the matter is that when I left um, Bruce 31, I, there was all these contracts, there was like money in the bank, everything was ready to go. And then they just, just took the vision that I had for the place and threw it away. And that's what pretty much killed it was, you know, them not following through on what they should have been doing. And the proof of the matter is, is that I don't think any of those people that were involved in that stage are still in the industry. And I am. So <laughs> right, I'll, okay. I'll take that as a feather in the cap. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it was. It was. It wasn't just one particular thing. It was. It was many things. Okay, because yeah, I always want to know that. But that wasn't the last time that you and I got to do some TV together. Because it was shortly thereafter. I, I think uh, mid to late 2013, the idea came up of, hey, why don't we run uh, not only a training facility, but let's turn this into a television show. That. I guess, just sort of had a training facility on the side in order to produce the talent needed for a television show. And that's where the concept and the production began on a show called QPW, Queensland Pro Wrestling. Man, those were some uh, really developmental times uh, professionally uh, for me because it was, uh, like you just touched on before, it was a strange transitional time or looming transitional time for you at 31 Digital. Uh, we had guys that uh, that you'd known for years on end that I was still getting to know at that point come in, help out with it. But, man, uh, I think we managed to clock uh, a season out of that. And then, yeah, it was uh, – Shortly thereafter, where an agreement had come down the pipeline of a season two, um, but just before I had that meeting, you had stepped away. You had you had left, and the transition period had happened, and a season two was spoken about and agreed upon. And then subsequently, hey, uh, yeah, the this has got to go because thirty mm, one's closing. But we did get to work on TV together. Uh, I think we managed to go out there and do some. Do some comedy shtick, try some stuff out that we maybe hadn't been able to do or sort of pay tribute to things that we had done down the line before. But, man, yeah, we uh, I'm pretty chuffed to say uh, after all these years that, you know, when pen comes to paper, we were able to work on hell. I mean, you could even count three television shows if you count the origins of when I was there at IPW and you guys were doing the season three. But I always, uh, in terms of actually being aware of the cameras and actually knowing who you were and being able to work together, man, those, uh, those two shows almost seemingly back to back was a lot of fun. Did, did you enjoy the process? Obviously feeling the professional pinch behind the scenes of, Hey, I'm not really feeling as comfortable as what you once were at 31 digital for lack, lack of a better term. But were you, did you enjoy that creative process that we had at, at QPW? Because that was originally an idea that you had drumming around for a while. It was. So when I was doing the wrestling for Pete and, and IPW, um, it, it started off as I, I had the idea um, and Pete was like, yeah, sure, you can film our shows and make them into TV shows. But it was very unaccommodating. 
it was very unaccommodating for us because it was essentially, you know, you can't have the live commentary. I had to do it in post. Like you couldn't, you know, I had to film it all. I had to edit it all. And, and all the shows were, you know, I had to essentially make these storylines up <laughs> for the TV show because it was just whatever. He, they were very unaccommodating, but very appreciative of all the attention the show got. So when, when the opportunity came to start our own, um, it, it was interesting in a way that like it was essentially the, the performance center before the performance center was a thing. Like right. the, the idea was the same. We'll create a gym that people can train, learn. We can create these stars from the bottom up, these, these characters from the bottom up so that we have a, a, a full, you know, roster of our own people who are going to be skilled because they're working only with each other and who go out and help cover the landscape of professional wrestling in Queensland Mm. Um, so it was, it was, it was fun and it was you and me, Maddie. Um, and I really enjoyed uh, that process, but at the same time, the pressures from outside of that took away from it because, because I had to get a grant to be able to get the ring and the belts and all that kind of stuff. And then it was like, how are you going to make money out of this? How are you? And it's like, I've got a grant for it. Like we don't have to, Oh no, no, everything's got to make a budget. So it was this constant pressure of like, squeezing stones to try to get anything out of it and um so at that stage i could see the writing on the wall and it was bad i actually probably stayed for six to eight months longer at bruce 31 because of qpw wow and you you guys because i i was scared that exactly what happened would happen yeah (laughs) and and that as soon as i was gone anything that was built in my image quote unquote would be killed off and that's exactly what happened um so yeah they 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 would toy toy with you know with you and and the guys and gals at qpw and be like hey you know no no we're gonna do this we believe in this and then that would be like you know (laughs) turn around and and not so much but at the same time the sky was falling out of community television all over the place it wasn't just brisbane if you look at the landscape now um there was uh, five and a half stations in community broadcasting at the height. There are now two. So, right. you know, Sydney fell, Lindsmore fell, Perth fell, we fell, you know, all that's left is Adelaide and, and Melbourne and they're on the bubble because that they're going to be pulled off TV um, at the end of this year. Well, actually in June, um, unless there's a reprieve and I doubt there's going to be. So, you know, it, it was something that had borrowed time anyway. So I yeah. can't I can't hate on them too much as much as I want to. <laughs> yeah, it was a it, it was a strange time down there, but hey, we made it work. We dressed it up. We managed to we managed to put it on air. And you still um, have the belt, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They uh they wanted they wanted me to come pick up the the props. They they wanted to do a season two. Um, so yeah, I. I picked it up and yeah it, so i designed uh, it yeah i, I, I built that. it <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah i'm gonna it's, come it's, at you with a steel chair and take it back one day <laughs> man you're more than welcome it's uh it's, <laughs> it's it's been polished and it's sitting in a glass cabinet in my house i'm very proud of the work we've done but hey if you want it back man uh you're more than welcome nice. to have it it's all right it's doing painful memories <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of memories man i remember one time we got uh we got some angry fan mail on the late night show, and uh, the fan said, "Oh, get rid of that host. That 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 accent is so fake. He's not even American." Man, yeah. you're gonna find the hands of time here because you didn't just 
start in uh, in good old Queensland, Australia, and started wrestling down there at IPW. And oh, I just happened to be a TV guy at the moment. Take me back, man. How, how did you get here, and how did this television journey begin? Well, my mom and dad loved each other very much, and one night they had too much Jack Daniels. Um, no, uh, yeah, that guy also also said that I wasn't actually American; that I had went to school with him in Gimpy. Which, oh, that's right, Gimpy. Yeah, yeah. And, if, and if anyone knows Gimpy, you know, going to school in Gimpy is a bit rhetorical. That's not something that happens. Um, so, so, so every every state's got one. Um, but you know, so I I grew up. I was born in Vermont which is in the northeast of the U.S., um, to a very rural family. We had a farm, um, cows, and a whole nine yards. Um, but then my parents split when I was three. I was the I-didn't-know-you-could-have-kids kid, so my parents were both older, and my siblings are all much older than I am. Right. Um, so once I was born, the parents split after 25 years of marriage. They were like, well, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> and and so um, we ended up moving to uh, Connecticut, uh, just outside of Hartford, Connecticut. And of course, if anyone knows um, wrestling, they know that WWE is based in Stanford, Connecticut, which is a literal sneeze away from where I was growing up. Mm-hmm. So being a kid of the 80s uh, and being a wrestling fan from the day dot, um, being that close to where WWE was meant that I was given a lot of things of being able to go to wrestling shows quite often for quite cheap and having memories of uh being snubbed by hulk hogan um oh, really yeah i got backstage to a show when i was a kid at the hartford civic center and went up to hulk hogan for an autograph and he looked at me and went fine i ain't got fucking time for this and just walked off and i was like the biggest hulkamaniac at that stage and um that happened i was like immediately from that point on i was like fuck hulk hogan <laughs> And to this day, I still hold that sentiment. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so when, you know, when him and Shawn Michaels had their program and Shawn Michaels made him look like a bitch, I was just like, yeah, there you go. That was for little, little Scotty. Um, <laughs> I can hold a grudge sometimes. Um, but no, so I grew up uh, in a, I, funny enough, I'm born in a rural environment, grew up in an urban environment. So right away, the differences between me and my my other kin is night and day. They're all country bumpkins as opposed to I'm the city slicker. So, um, But always the one thing that me and even my brother and I uh, could get together were, was wrestling right. and um, watching – Savage and and Dino Bravo and Ricky Martel and Jake the Snake and you know all those guys in the, the early eighties um, would just changed our our brains and I remember you know being a kid and doing the Ric Flair woo and you know doing the Macho Man elbow off the back of the couch on my brother and um, being pile driven by my brother <laughs> which could explain <laughs> for a lot of things. Um, but wrestling was always kind of there. But at the same time, my grandfather, who was like my real dad, um, he he wasn't my real dad, he was my grandfather, but um, he was showing me things like the Marx Brothers and Bob Hope and George Burns and George Carlin and the MASH and, you know, all that kind of classic comedy. So comedy and wrestling were the probably the two most steadfast things in my life and the most stable things in my life. So yeah, that when I that I always carried through, and I always stayed true. The only other thing I think that might trump them is my love for Superman, which is, uh, I think, 
my psychologist nutted it down to my love of Superman is my uh, want of the ultimate father figure. <laughs> if you want to get psychological with that. Oh, okay. Someone who will never let you down, who will always do what's right, who will always, you know, uh, fight for what's right and, and be there. Uh, but yeah, so I'm staring at my Superman coffee mug at the moment. So no matter this revelation still hasn't changed anything. <laughs> <laughs> That was your history back there. Um, how, how did you travel pretty much across the globe to get here to then be involved in television? Well, there, right at, so I was still in high school when um, I started wrestling. So it was in 1993. I was watching, uh, what was it on Saturday? It was Saturday morning. I think it was Superstars. Saturday morning Superstars. Right. Um, on uh, with Todd Pettengill. Uh, and, uh, I was watching it with my uncle, uh, who was a bit like me as well. Who's just kind of like, fuck it. I'm just going to go do it kind of guy. And, um, he went, Oh, this looks fun. He had never watched wrestling. And I said, yeah, this is the best thing ever. And he's like, Oh, Kent, is there a local feds? Yeah. I said, yeah, there's some local promotions. He's like, I'm going to go do it. I'm like, you just, you can't just go do it. idiot." Yeah. And so <laughs> he goes and gets trained and starts wrestling. And I'm like, Oh fuck! You can't just go to it. <laughs> so, so I went with him and, and uh, got trained as well, um, and started doing shows. So, was wrestling on in the U.S. mostly for a company called Green Mountain Wrestling um, in right. Vermont, but would go out into Canada, down the down the coast, and things like that, and travel about. And at the time, was also doing open mic stand up because that was always a passion as well. Um, and then started doing radio. Um, when I was in uh, 15, so I was still in high school, I started a part-time shift at a radio station. And so the entertainment blood, the performing, you know, it was all there, uh, being in broadcasting. And then, so flash forward to I finished high school, still wrestling, working radio full-time, loving it. Um, and then sat, had a car accident that kind of shelved me for a little while and kind of got into this depression cycle and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of retreated to the internet, which was still new at that stage. Yeah, um, yeah. And just randomly met a person on the internet, which was a big taboo thing back in the day. Now it's like everyone meets on the internet. But back then it was like, you're going to get murdered by a serial killer if you talk to somebody online and meet them in real life. Um, so I met my wife, who uh, was from Australia, and she came to the States and stayed there for a while um, and then said, do you want to go back to Australia? And I said, does it snow there? And she said, nope. And I went, fucking beauty. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I was happy to get out of there. I always thought, like, I always knew that the States weren't for me, um, which is when my two favorite fictional characters are Superman and Captain America. Um but also my third favorite character of all time is Doctor Who, which kind of shows you where I was heading. I was going to go to the UK um, right. and then or Canada. Um, but I knew U.S. wasn't for me. Um, so Australia, obviously much better weather weather than U.K. or Canada. So yep. that worked. Um, yeah. So I went there, came here, fell in love with it right away. Uh, luckily, it worked out with the, the now wife. Uh, we've been together for 20 years now. Um, wow, two, years, two kids. Um, and the problem and how I got into TV was that yeah. I got here and they said wrong accent for radio and they were what? pretty, 
yeah, they were like, no, thank you. And I had produced radio for some of the, like Don and Mike's show, and this is only for really a gangster. It was a, one of the biggest radio shows in the country was Don and Mike's show, and I used to be one of their producers. Um, I didn't write anything for them, but I was just a desk producer. But I had my own radio show. I had a morning show that we were number one in our demographic. I had in our area, region. I had a, a, an afternoon show on a classical rock station. I was on a country. Like, I had all this experience. So to come yeah. here and be like, no, thank you, because your accent's like, fuck you. Um, so I said, all right, well, in that case, I will get into community broadcasting and fell uh, volunteering for Bruce City One at the time. So I did literally every job at that place. I worked. I was a volunteer there for a year, got employed as a grunt, and just ended up running the place towards the end. So um, that was the, the journey was pretty much because at that time, commercial radio in Australia was like, mm, sorry, you have the wrong accent for us. Um, but now here I am also back in radio again. So all full circle. Yeah. So you, you, you join up. So you're saying you're doing radio again now where, where, what is the station and, and, um, what, what is your role there now? Is it similar to 31? Uh, not really. Um, so I am the general manager, uh, well, station manager for Reading Radio 4RPH. Reading Radio right. 4RPH is a uh, reading station. It's in the name. Uh, so we, our demographic is that we work for people who have a print disability. So people who either can't read uh, words because of learning difficulties, vision impairment, you know, any kind of thing, physical disability. And so our morning show is reading the newspaper. So we read the newspapers, magazines, books, um, curate content off the internet, uh, mm. all different types of stuff. So no, it, it's it's different. It's more of a service than a radio station, but I, I really do enjoy it. And at the moment, due to the COVID-19 stuff, um, I'm the only person in the studio. So everyone zooms in. Uh, over Zoom or Skype into the into the station, and I put them to air. But I do six air hours of radio Monday to Friday at the moment while yeah. still running the place. That's uh, that must feel a bit surreal being into that empty environment right now. It 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 can be weird because I've spent like when I first started here, the volunteership was pretty low, um, yeah. and it was a pretty barren place and not a very friendly place. And over the last three years, I've really worked really really hard to make it a place that people want to be and fun, vibrant um, environment, and then just uh, have to shut it out immediately. Like we were one of the early shutdowns, like we voluntarily shut down. A lot of my volunteers are in that high risk demographic. Um, So I, with my volunteer coordinator, we sat down and I I had already limited it, you know, cut production, made people start working from home. And then we just said, no, we've got to, we've got to pull it. And I mean, we would have been forced to anyway. Um, but yeah, we, we pulled it out. Um, so I've been doing it for three weeks now. <laughs> it's coming in. Wow. So how did you come about getting your start now in Australian wrestling? Was it just a case of hit it up in the local paper and say, Hey, I've been doing this in the States. Might as well pick it up here. Uh, Pretty much, I I pretty much given wrestling a flick, um, okay. thinking that once I came here, it was pretty much Dunskis, um, and then and didn't know that there was an Australian scene. And it, I think I I was still watching WWE, um, and uh, somebody found a flyer for one of the WCW shows at Southport Basketball Stadium. And um, said, oh, we should go. So my father and I 
my father-in-law Robert and I went down to watch um, and I was just like oh these guys are pretty fun and it was you know Pepe the Clown versus the Canadian Wolf and it was uh, the Sweet Assassin versus I forget who he fought I think it might have been Commando um, no he fought Jackaroo um, and then it was a weird one versus Hawk and a rat trap table match Jeez. I was just like I was like, oh, okay, these guys are pretty interesting. And then went up and talked to Hawk after the show. Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm a wrestler from the States. And he went, oh, you should come to one of our trainings. And I said, oh, yeah, that would be pretty fun. And he goes, yeah, yeah, no, no worries, $50. <laughs> so it's like, right. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so I went there and trained. I went for a training one night and um showed him what i could do he immediately he was just like yeah get in there let's see what happens and so in america that's especially back in the early days you would like you, you're trained to wrestle the left side but in america you would get people who would do it back to front and train on the right side so american style was trained on the right side it's it's only now i think probably in the last 20 years that it's pretty much a universal standard everyone goes left side yeah um so i was on the right side and immediately just got hung shit on um <laughs> and and uh especially by one particular guy named hayden uh who fancied himself a shooter um and so i remember going all right well i've got some shit to prove here um but immediately was put in like so he thought i was not much and oh, i'm yang don't know anything and then so i don't know why but then pete immediately put me in the main event scene for the company oh straight up my 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 debut match for wcw australia was in the main event against jethro for the title and uh where i put the infamous uh ding in the brand new 300 dollars belt uh because i uh, potatoed uh jethro with the belt (laughs) and um because he, he goes how hard do you i said how, he goes hit me with the belt i said how hard do you want it he goes give me everything you got and i went are you sure and he just went yeah yeah, yeah i can take it and then he doesn't remember anything after me hitting him uh, <laughs> with the belt um which is also he, he got me back because he also hit me with the last german suplex that i ever took because he dropped me right on the back of my head and um, I said from that day forward, I was never going to take a German suplex again. So whenever anyone ever tried, I used to kick him in the dick. Um, so yeah, that's, that never took a German suplex again after that. <laughs> Is that but yeah? So that's pretty much how I got in there, and then I was there for, for donkey's years. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, you you mentioned earlier in the podcast you had the injury. Was that in wrestling? or Was that outside the ring? No, that was in that was in there. It's, so it's it's on the. Uh, on, on the online for everyone to see so uh we um we got to the stage where hawk was really going to have a big gamble on us and really trying to put us into the mainstream again i it always seemed to be a part of these things that were way ahead of ahead of their time like if, yeah. if he if he had done what he did then now it would have been a success it would have gone viral it would have had all this stuff but we were just at that time where the internet was there but not really a part of it and there was really not youtube yeah um people were still doing fucking vhs tape trades you know stuff like that so um he put this money into the, doing this big show at this big venue in southport um which was huge it was a huge sta- a stadium 
uh, fit a couple thousand people, I think, and then uh, bought these talents from ECW to come out, Steve Carino, C.W. Anderson, brought up these guys from Sydney and Melbourne, and he said to me, he goes, what do you want to do? I want to make the special. And it was one of his moments where he loved me. Um, and so I said that me and Jason Helton, who Jason Helton is a former WCW, WWE, ECW enhancement talent. He'll hate me saying that, but he, he never had a big run in any of the companies. He was used to pretty much put people over. Famously, he, uh, <laughs> my favorite thing ever, and I, give, I send him this to him on his birthday still every year, um, is him getting tombstoned. He was the first guy who got beat up by The Undertaker back in the early days. The Undertaker, who he didn't even take his jacket off. Like oh, wow. he, 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 Undertaker was in a, a, a program with a guy named Nails who had this prisoner gimmick. Um, he, he gets in the ring with, for a match with, with Helton. Uh, Taker hasn't even taken his jacket off and Nails tries to attack him. Helton tries to sneak attack him. He gets choke slammed. No, he gets big booted, he gets choke slammed, and he gets tombstoned and pinned, and Taker doesn't even take his jacket off. And this was, you know, I don't know, mid-90s. Um, so I still send him a picture of him getting tombstoned to him every year on his birthday. Um, but him and I always wanted to work together, and I had the chance. So he came up, and we did an ECW uh, street fight. And, oh, wow. Um, How'd that and, go? Uh, it was pretty good, except for breaking my back. Um, so right. I mean, we had it, we had everything, we had all the, the accoutrement, you know, tables and chairs, but I decided I was going to make the tables cause it's a street fight. And I always hated it in a street fight where they would pull out like a folding table. You're not going to find a folding table in a street fight. You're going to find planks of wood. You're going to find, you know, junk. So I had these really junk saw horses and pulled out some wood and made a table to go through. And the spot was supposed to be, we would fight on the apron, tease, tease a table spot, tease a table spot. And then he was going to go for a back elbow. I was going to catch him and I was going to leg sweep him off the apron. And we were both going to crash through the table. Now, depending on who you talk to, <laughs> um, uh, I have the facts. He has his version. And uh, he held on to the top rope. So I don't know if he pushed that or what. Or, or had second thoughts or whatever, but he held. So I whip us back. He held on to the, to the top rope. So him holding made me come off at an angle. And I went through the table first and landed awkwardly on the, on the top of my back and cracked a vertebrae. Oh. And then he came, then he came down on top of me. Um, if you watch the match, which is still on YouTube, um, like you see me every time I get up, I go to get up, I roll over, I can't get up. Um, we go, we continue the match because this is wrestling. We're not that smart. Um, every time I do something, like pick them up, body slam them, my legs just give out and I just go down. Um, there's a spot as well where uh, he has me in a crippler crossface because he's Canadian and that's by law he has to do it. Um, <laughs> I pick him up out of the crippler crossface into an F5 and just totally just chunk him on my own head. And oh. so we finished the match. I think I did an elbow off the top rope and then I gave him the grave digger onto a steel chair and pinned him one, two, three. Um, but I don't really remember that much of it. I only remember it from the video. Um, and then for the next year, I thought I had just a really severe pulled muscle because it kind of hurt, but it didn't, it wasn't stopping me from doing anything. Um, so I still wrestled for another year and a bit with this injury 
until I started, yeah, losing feeling in my hands. And that's when I went and got tested and they're like, yeah, stop everything. Um, and so it didn't, obviously it didn't sever because I wouldn't be walking, but, uh, the crack was just kind of bouncing around and occasionally what was coming is in the numbness of supposedly, I guess my nerves were getting like hitting with the friction or something. And it was just causing, it would call it a burning sensation in like my armpits and then it, my fingers would lose feeling and stuff. So yeah, there was a year and a bit that I couldn't do anything, which sucked because I've always had a weight problem and this was at my fittest I had ever been in my life. I was ripped. I was looking good. Um, and immediately it was taken away from me <laughs> and I couldn't go to the gym anymore. I couldn't even run. I wasn't even supposed to jog like a brisk pace um, to, until this healed. And then, of course, the you know, depression cycle comes from being sidelined and you start eating. And yeah, but that was that. That was the fun thing. Man, uh, I had no idea of all the uh, exterior situations that came about after that injury because, yeah, there's uh, the old saying with wrestling is it ain't ballet. And, you know, we do put our lives in each other's hands but uh yeah man that was such a i mean i've seen that footage and each time uh yeah you, you look at that bump and you go oh that looked a bit rough but hearing it firsthand from you the guy that you know had that match and uh, subsequently had that injury yeah man sometimes uh you know it's it it is sometimes the littlest sort of slight tweaks or just the way that you land that sometimes have the biggest ripple effect in injuries i mean yeah it's a real it's a real risk, but hey, it all turned out for the best one way or another. You got to have a second run. You got to have that commentary desk. You got to do involved in television and still involved in media to some extent today. So very no, lucky. No regrets. No regrets. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd do it all again. And and funny enough, during that injury, I actually had some of my best matches while I was still hurt. So um, it, it was a weird thing. And then getting to come back and do it my way. I still like I get asked occasionally to come back and do a show now or do a match and I keep saying no 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 because I like I like the fact that I said I'm done and I like being done right, um, right. and so even I think the, the closest I have ever given in was that uh, recently IPW asked me to come do a reunion show and it was just after Hawk had passed away yep. and I thought and then of course he drop me with the whole do it for Pete uh, kind of mentality. And I'm like, ah, all right. So I, I said, I'll, I'll come and do like a rumble spot, but I'm not having a match. So I even came, I had a shirt made up that said, you know, not dead, just retired um, and did a spot and then immediately got out. And that was the cause. And that was it. I, I won't, I will not 100%. I will never wrestle another match. And, and it's just because um, it's too risky. And, and you know I'm at, I'm 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 40, um, you know uh, I I know my body better than anyone. It hurts all the time now from everything I've done for it. So yep. why would I risk that? Um, and I used to love the fact that it was me and Shawn Michaels who had retired and never come back, and then he went back and did that match in Saudi Arabia, and I'm like, ma. Mm. But, and I understand if I had that kind of payday, if someone was offering me six million dollars to do one match, one hundred percent I would do it. But that ain't <laughs> happening here. And yeah, so yeah, I'll, I'll it'll just be me now. Hey, I'll tell you what is happening. We're about to we're about to wrap up this podcast. But before we do, 
I'm going to hit you with what I call a deep dive. Now, this is a segment where I ask my interviewees questions that only they can give their unique spin and their own unique answer to. So, Scott, are you ready for the deep dive? Yeah, hit me deep. That sounded weird. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you these questions. I don't know what you want me to do to you, but I'm going to ask you these questions. Hey, I'm lonely. I haven't had any contact with this isolation. <laughs> hey, yeah. what was a turning point in your life? How did it affect you, and how did you overcome it? Uh, turning point in my life. I would probably say the birth of my children, obviously. Um, made yeah. me realize that a lot of the shit that I was thinking meant everything didn't mean anything and that their health and happiness meant the world to me uh, means everything else. So I was able to let go of a lot of anger and in, in the issues in my rebellious streaks and just realize that life is a bit silly and have fun with it. Matt, that's, uh, yeah, that's definitely... Uh, a very crucial turning point, I think, not only in your life, but anyone's life. I, I think it's a complete accurate assumption there of, uh, yeah, your whole mentality shift. Did your whole mentality shift? That was a case of, okay, all that stuff that I'm worried about, all those all those bygone moments, yep, we'll put that behind because now, hey, you know, I'm a dad. Sure. I mean, it, it just meant that I, what kind of man did I want them to see? Did I want to see someone who's obsessed with you know, views and fans and multis, you know, social media and, you know, stressing out over everything. Or did I want someone that was just there for them that would get on the ground and play Lego and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, so everything I was kind of raging against in my own mind and trying to build an audience and build a brand and all that kind of shit. It's like, Oh, none of that matters. And the only thing that matters to me is this tiny human, um, two tiny humans that, mm. you know, need me more than, you know, somebody needs me to make them laugh or, or perform at a show. So, um, yeah, I, I pretty much stopped doing stand-up once they were born. I kind of stopped doing my own shows. I still do things every once in a while, but if it, only if it fits within the schedule for my family. Fam I, right. even tell, I even tell them here at work all the time, like when they're, you know, if my kids got something on, they're number one. This place is number two. So my yeah. family is number one. Everything else comes afterwards. So they always will get my attention first. Right. Yeah, that's some that's some solid advice to hand out to people listening. You've always been giving me good advice to me. We're both inside and outside the ring uh, with, our, with our shows, with stand-up comedy, and, yeah, get, being in the ring, working together. But, hey, that's the advice that you've given. But what is the best advice that you have ever received? Uh... Let's see. I guess there's a few, I guess, when it comes to different. I, I, I think the one I probably give back the most is that if you feel like a dickhead, you're doing it right. And right. that that kind of goes for a lot of things. So in wrestling, in performance, in broadcasting and in life, people are afraid to put themselves out there. People are afraid to show vulnerability or be a dag or be, you know, uncool or be themselves. So everyone's putting up this front. Everyone's pretending to be things they're not. Everyone's pretending to be more important than they are because no one wants to feel like a dickhead. And I always say that when you feel like you're being a dickhead, that's when you're being your truest self. And, like, and, it, and, it, and it comes to that point of it's not feeling like a dickhead and being self-aware of it, but feel, being like a dickhead and being okay with it. So in wrestling, you know, Earlier in my career, I was like the evil dark lord kind of guy because I love that kind of shit. I love horror movies. I love that stuff. But it wasn't until I was the guy who is roasting people, 
talking shit, getting hit that I hit my stride because that's who I am. And that's when I felt like a dickhead. And I was happy with that because I, I, I knew that I was hitting the right nerve and being that, you know, exposing who I really was to, to an audience. So I guess, yeah, that, that would be my favorite bit of advice that I got years and years ago, which is, yeah, if you're feeling like a dick, you're doing it right, which is my friend Phil, who I'm still friends with in radio because I said I didn't feel like doing a sketch on a radio show because it made me feel I was being silly. I, I felt silly. And he goes, yeah, if you feel like a dickhead, you're doing it right. So I've kept that. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I get what you mean by that. But, uh, yeah, it's just it's exposing your most vulnerable self. It's a simplified version of saying be true to yourself. And yeah. and if if you have something to offer and a personality, and if you have something to offer, people will see that you don't have to pretend. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier about uh, two or three uh, pop icons or shows there that that influenced you um, growing up and and possibly when you were moving over here, likes of Superman, Doctor Who. But who are your personal heroes, and why do you hold them in such high regard? Uh, easiest one for me my number one iconic role model not his personal life so much as as just i guess his professional would be johnny carson um johnny carson was a huge late night host in the states like he was the man he yeah he, he could he could change someone's career he's the man responsible for david letterman and Ray Romano and Jerry Seinfeld and Joan Rivers, like he, he discovered and, and made these people stars. Um, always funny. And even now you can go back and watch his monologues and his shows and he's still funny, still relevant even today. Um, and yeah, it was just, you know, wanted to always be the best. Never, never got full of himself. Never was like, I am the greatest of all times and I will, you know, was always humble, always, always willing to do it. Um, so, yeah, Johnny Carson for comedy and life. Uh, you know, I think he was my my torchbearer um, in wrestling. Um, Macho Man and Shawn Michaels were, yeah. you know, they're two different eras. But Macho Man was my first, like, ooh, who is that? And he was just so outlandish and over the top. And I loved it. Um, and then when I saw Shawn Michaels uh, for the first time, uh, he was USWA. I saw him on a, a tape, and then when he got to WWE as the Rockers, I was like, "That guy has everything I want to be in a man." <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in the '90s, you know, he he was my guy. Um, even when he was heel, when he was face, when everyone hated him, when everyone wanted him to go away, he was my guy. And when he came back, I don't think anyone would have been more emotional when he came back for that 2005 SummerSlam. Uh, match against Triple H. Um, I think I was, I was probably the happiest I've ever been with with wrestling. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a that was a surreal moment to to see Sean after all those years uh, losing his smile, do the commissioner angle, but sort of take a leave of absence for a while there. But I think, uh, yeah, definitely that 2002 uh, SummerSlam where it was like a could he, couldn't he? Was it 2002? Yeah, man, 2002. Because they he went into elimination chamber two thousand three and won the title in that oh, when he had the brown tights. Yeah, two brown tights. <laughs> but hey, you were a host yourself. One of the main influences in your life with Johnny Carson, the host of the Tonight Show. But uh, this is this brings up another segment. Speaking of hosts, this brings us to the next segment, the Lipton Six. This is in tribute of James Lipton, who sadly we lost earlier this year in March, twenty twenty. He was an American writer, lyricist, actor, and the dean 
of the Actors Studio Drama School at Pace University in New York City, where he hosted and ran his TV show Inside the Actors Studio from 1994 to 2018. So in honor and tribute of him, I'm going to ask you his famous six questions that he would ask all his guests before wrapping up his interview. So first, Cab, off the rank, what is your favorite word? Uh, my favorite word would have to probably be, I'd have to probably say innovation. I use it a lot yeah. and I, it's something that I, I like to do no matter what I'm doing is always try to see how I can make things better. So I say innovation. Okay. What turns you on now? You could, you could answer in the way that I think you're thinking, but it also means like, Hey, what gets you excited? What's what says, Hey, this is makes you happy. gets you fired up. What, what do you appreciate? So I, I, well, same in the bedroom as it is in real life, uh, creativity, uh, the creativity <laughs> gets me going no yeah. matter where if I'm, I love to see people creating. I love to see people trying new things. Um, I like when people think outside of the box and again, in, in the bedroom or in real life, um, and, and just try to do new things. So yeah, creativity is something that really gets me going. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, well, uh, probably a lame answer, but a true one. I love hearing my family laughing and, yeah. you know, my, my daughter has probably one of the greatest laughs in the world. She gets it. It's like a hybrid of my wife's and my mine, but my son has a great one or two. So hearing them laughing in, in the house is probably my favorite thing in the world. Now this might not make him laugh, but I'm, I might make me laugh. Hey, what is your favorite curse word? Oh, it's easy. It's fuck. It's a great one. <laughs> you get, you can't, you can't get a better word. Like it, it has so many different meanings, but at the same time, it's a, it's, it's got those set, such satisfying, you know, hard syllables. Mm. Um, you know, it can, it can be an, something that blows your mind. Fuck. It can be something that, you know, angers you. Fuck. You know, it's just, it's perfect. It's a perfect word. Yeah, it's pretty perfect, man. But hey, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I've done so many. Because um, I'm one of those people that if I want to try something, I just go do it. I don't wait. Um, so I've done everything from radio to like working farms to digging graves to wrestling to comedy to TV. Um, if I didn't have my job, I, um, I always wanted to be a... a a, uh, a movie trailer editor, someone who just made movie trailers, because I yeah. love that idea that you can take a film, um, and especially it happens so much these days where they take a film and they make a trailer that's a, for a completely different film. Like you, mm, you can, mm. and somebody uh, way back when, when the first Transformers movie was coming out, um, there was a guy who, to prove the point, edited the trailer in five different ways with different music and different lighting and different effects and stuff. And he made it like a horror movie, made it a rom-com, made it a drama, made it a period piece. Like he made all these different edits with the same footage. And, and that, I love that aspect that you can make people feel different with the way you edit something. So yeah, probably a trailer movie trailer editor. Man, the one thing that gets me about man, the one thing that gets me about movie trailers is sometimes they edit these trailers together with footage that's not even in the movie. 
Oh, and that happens so much these days. They, the push to try to get buzz happening and some viral marketing happening means that they'll spoil the movie. They'll put shit mm. that's pur- purposely misleading. But I mean, even when we were kids, that happened. I remember they used to make like I remember when Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was coming out. They made a trailer for the movie that had nothing to do with the movie, just the concept of Indiana Jones. And it was like, you know, I think it was it was the boulder. It was like, but nothing, no Harrison Ford. It was obvious that Harrison Ford was not in this trailer. And it was a trailer that had like the boulder, it had, which is the wrong movie. It had a guy picking up a hat, picking up the whip. And it was like, the adventure continues, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And I'm like, it had nothing to do with the fucking movie. Like, <laughs> they did the same thing. I think it was Batteries Not Included, which was like a kids film that I quite liked from when I was a kid that all the movies, the trailers for that had nothing to do with the movie. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a interesting, interesting world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, uh, there's some really clever editors out there, man, but last of the Lipton six, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? And in this corner from Hartford, Connecticut, weighing 309, you know, I'd love it, a big entrance, you know, the world heavyweight champion, Scott Black. Um, yeah, I want, I want immediately heaven to be an Armageddon six-way uh, highway, uh, hell in a cell match uh, for, the, for the WWE title. And it'd be like me, Michaels, who I'm hoping will be dead at that stage before me. Um, and you know, like, uh, and, uh, Macho Man and Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect. And, you know, um, who else would be dead at that stage that I quite like? I don't think Finn Balor will be, I hope not. He's still, he's younger than I am. Uh, but anyway, you know, I, I, I want, I want heaven to essentially be uh, a nerd playground where I get to be with all the people I love, but also get to do all the things I love. I also wouldn't mind. I, I did. I, I weirdly, I also wouldn't mind getting to heaven and somebody going, "Look, it's your bird, it's your plane, it's Superman," and that would be sick. Be my entire afterlife <laughs> being Superman. So, yeah, no, I think that would be uh, a lot of people's dreams, man. But definitely, uh, definitely be well suited given your mm-hmm. fandom. But hey, man, we're about to hit this nitrous into overdrive. We're about to slam on that pedal, Vin Diesel style. We're about to drive our asses straight towards that finish line before riding off into the sunset. So I'm going to hit you with what I call the final four before we call it a day here. So, Scott, was there ever a point in your life where you stopped and thought, hey, man, this isn't going to work. This this whole thing, this might not be for me. No, every day. (laughs) <laughs> okay I, mean, I i think if you don't have if you don't have doubt in, in everything that you do and you know if you're one of those pe- people that thinks oh, i've got this i'm perfect immediately everyone overshoots you so i always say you stay hungry and you always try to be better today than you were yesterday better today than you were yesterday so I, I'm, I'm constantly in doubt if i'm raising the kids right if i'm doing best here if i'm doing the right thing so it's just always pushing me to be better. So, yeah, no, I feel that every day. <laughs> well, to spin off that question, have you ever stopped and thought, man, how the hell did I get here? Every, yeah, every day. <laughs> yeah. I always thought I'd be dead at 25, so I've always thought I'm living on borrowed time. Um, and it wasn't for any wish. It was just kind of that's where I thought my life was heading. So, no, I, I, if, you, if you would have told 
you know, little little old me in in Connecticut, Winstead, Connecticut, when I was ten, that I'd be living in Australia with a wonderful family and a good group of friends. I'd be like, yeah, okay, where's Australia? Is that where Arnold Schwarzenegger's from? Because um, I was dumb as a kid, and so yeah, no, my life has definitely taken a really strange turn. Well, to spin off your answer there, which which uh, which is interesting, man, because you're you're thinking, hey, at 25, I'm going to call it a day. You weren't uh, maybe you weren't in the best place mentally or emotionally at that point, but this question might be able to sort of get get a grasp on that because you know you're thinking at 25, I'm going to clock out, but maybe earlier on, especially when you're starting your wrestling journey, did you ever think earlier on in your life, getting to this age that you're at now? Do you ever think this is where you'd be? No, no, not in a million years. Um, I, I, I probably thought I'd probably just get some factory job, and you know, I thought I'd be married or something like that. At least I always hoped for it, but I, I didn't think I'd be married to the perfect person for me and have great yeah. kids and and great job and be in an amazing part of the world. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely weird, and I'm very grateful. Well, man, this, we reached the last of the final four. This is the final question. You may have already just touched on it there. I'm going to ask you it anyway. Currently, what is your proudest moment or achievement? Um, I, I'd have to say just, yeah, being a dad, I think. Being a family man being, is, is probably the happiest I have ever been doing anything, and I've done so many creative things. But I, I guess I, I also say that even if it ends tomorrow, and with the current world, it might um i don't have any regrets and that's where i always advise everyone whether i'm giving advice for to wrestlers or comedians or anybody is like life is too short and i don't personally i don't think there's anything else after this world and even if there is i don't know so i would rather live my life to the fullest now and worry about the repercussions later um but the fact is is like yeah you know go out and do that thing if you've been putting something off for years stop putting it off go do it have no regrets get to the end of your life and go and someone goes is there anything you really wanted to do you can kind of go uh no no i'm good and at this moment i could say no i'm good i've I've done everything i've wanted to do except now i haven't because with kids you always have the next thing it's like well i want to see them have kids and i want to see them get married and i want to so i haven't done everything but um, yeah, so I've still got things to go forward. So don't say I'm just going to go take that, that <laughs> bottle of pill and drain it down with some hand sanitizer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, stay away from those Tide Pods, man. But hey, we've shared we've shared your journey here today. You start of uh, start of your media career, start of your wrestling career, coming over here to Australia, your Australian wrestling journey, all the way up until we met each other, and all the work that we've done together, and hell, even the work that we continue to do to get together to this day. Global situation notwithstanding, it'd be good to get back out there either on the road or behind this camera or hell, even sitting next to you with a microphone recapping our stories and our crazy, crazy moments together. Uh, you speak about being grateful, man. I'm grateful for it for you. I'm grateful for everything that you've done for me and uh, the opportunities that you've given, not only myself, but dozens of local Brisbane uh, artists, performers, you name it. Yeah, it was a platform there, and you made sure that everyone got their moment to shine. So, Scott, uh, thank you so much for everything that you've done, man. My pleasure, buddy, and it was uh, good to have you on the journey, and I look forward to uh, many more with you. Thank you, man. And before we hit the road, where can people find you and link to that match? So where can we uh, hit you up on the socials? 
Yeah, so on social media, as you can find me at uh, Mr. Scott Black on pretty much everything. I think on Instagram, it's the Scott Black because some asshole took Mr. Scott Black and ruined the perfectness. But you can always just go to mrscottblack.com and all the links will be there. Awesome, man. Again, thank you so much for the history that we've had together, man. It's been a crazy, crazy 12 years. And hey, I'm looking forward to the next 12, man. Uh, I love you like a brother. I can't wait to see you again once all this craziness is over. Stay safe and thank you again for coming on, man. No worries, man. My pleasure. See ya. So there you have it. A little bit of light night show history there with Scott Black. It was great to touch base with him again. Great to have a little chat, a little catch up and share his wrestling journey and his life journey. I want to thank you all again for tuning into this podcast, Little Man Big Conversations. Hey, if you haven't done so already, please hit up Little Man Big Conversations on Facebook at LMBC Podcast and on Instagram at LMBC Podcast and on Twitter at LMBC underscore podcast. There's plenty more episodes to come. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll see you next week.